Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Ariel Demaros, and I'm hosting a new podcast called Vice News Reports. With so much going on around the world, so many people telling you they have the definitive take on the news. We bring you to the news so you can hear it for yourself. From the newsroom that has earned more Emmy nominations than any other news team, this podcast goes where the story is, from conflict zones to the labyrinth of digital life. You've never traveled quite like this. Get the Vice News Reports podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For the week of Thursday, May 28th, the COVID-19 death toll in the United States has reached a staggering milestone, 100,000 dead, in the span of two and a half months. Meanwhile, Vice President Biden's unscripted remarks at the end of a live interview draw fury. An unhinged and arguably racist rant from a white woman against a black man in New York's Central Park sparks backlash. The death of another unarmed black man at the hands and knees of police officers in Minneapolis prompts a loud outcry. Outrage builds towards talk show host Jimmy Fallon over a resurfaced Saturday Night Live sketch in which he dressed in blackface. And President Trump's not-so-veiled public statements accusing Joe Scarborough of murder get bipartisan rebuke. All of this played out to different degrees over Twitter this past week as Americans in various stages of quarantine still have begun to show signs of reaching a breaking point. Where should the line be drawn for what is acceptable? And is it so far behind us now that we can't even see it anymore? For Politicon, I'm Clay Aiken. This week... Jen Uger returns to the pod. He's the host of the largest online news program in the world, The Young Turks. On perhaps the other end of the spectrum, Joel Pollack serves as senior editor-at-large and in-house counsel for Breitbart News. Former White House Deputy Press Secretary Bill Burton was special assistant to President Obama, and he co-founded the Priorities USA Action, the largest Democrat super PAC in the country. And former Congressman Joe Walsh of Illinois made a run for the Republican nomination for president against Donald Trump this year, and he's the host of the podcast, Fuck Silence. They are all Politicon family this week. They're here to try to help us make sense of the chaos we're living through, and please God, let one of them tell us, how the heck are we going to get along? Jenk, we'll start with you. Are all five of these things deserving above, about equal outrage, do you think? Oh, no, no, not at all. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, that was sort of rhetorical, but yes, I'm glad you answered it that way. <laughs> okay, first of all, on Twitter, is there anything outside of outrage? Uh, so, I Right, got, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got the right wing, I got the establishment, and now I have leftists all hating me, so it's fun for everybody. <laughs> um, so, I, you, you got to learn how to... Uh, zone it out. There's, there's just no other way to survive on Twitter. And uh, and so I view uh, my uh, replies as kind of an insane asylum. Uh, and every <laughs> once in a while, I'll open the door and there's people in straitjackets bouncing off the white walls. Uh, I'll get a good laugh out of it. And then I'll close and I'll go away for 23 hours and 30 minutes. Uh, and But they're still in there yelling, yelling at the top of their lungs, right? Uh, so unless you have that kind of attitude, 
uh, it's going to swallow you whole. I mean, I, I talked to somebody that had six negative comments and they lost their minds. Uh, I get, I don't know, a couple of thousand negative comments every single day from every political faction there is. And for the folks who are on here on the podcast, Joe, Joel, etc., from the right wing, don't worry. Now the leftists hate me more than you guys. Uh, so we're all good. Okay. <laughs> well, that's a ba- I guess that could be a badge of honor for you. Joel, you're in the media, though, and I guess one of the questions that I, I guess, was baffled by a little bit this week is, I mean, Jenk is right. It's, it's just an insane asylum on Twitter. But does it not get a lot of attention from the press? I mean, is Twitter in some ways sort of guiding what we discuss in the media now? Well, I think it's interesting to watch how the press corps uses Twitter. When I was covering the 2016 campaign as part of the traveling press corps, I was often surprised by how much time the journalists spent on Twitter. We would get to a rally, and there's a little pen where the journalists go, and you file in there, and you plug in your computer, and you sit down among all the local journalists from whatever state or city you're in, and there's a great opportunity to interview people in the crowd to take in the scene. And yet so many of the national journalists sit there and just go on Twitter. And I was shocked to see that it still goes on. I think people do it partly for the narcissistic dopamine hit that they get when they get retweeted or for the thrill of the fight or because it's kind of like high school and they're trying to fit in with a popular crowd and more people like you on Twitter, or if you get the right people to like you or follow you, I guess it's sort of a rush. But I think so much of our press corps has become distracted by the inside baseball of that social media world at the expense of getting out and talking to people about what motivates them to support the candidates that they do. Is it just laziness? It's easier to get a quote from a tweet than it is to go actually talk to somebody on the street and find out? Is that what, what, <laughs> what people are doing? Is that why they're using it as journalists? I think so. It's also easier to find people making mistakes on Twitter in a conversation (laughs) with someone. You know, you can talk to somebody and you can follow up with a question. Are they sure they meant to say X or Y? And they can correct themselves or qualify something they've said. On Twitter, you don't have to do that. So if you want to cast people as being on polar opposites of an issue, it's very easy to do on Twitter. Twitter is also different from us other social media platforms like Facebook. On Facebook, most people interact with people they know from other contexts. So if you are putting your political opinions out there, you're going to offend or alienate half of your relatives, neighbors, classmates, workmates, etc. On Twitter, you tend to gather a community around yourself that already agrees with you. You don't even know who these people are. You don't even know if they're people, but there are Twitter accounts that will follow you and retweet you or troll you and tweet against you based entirely on the content of what you're saying, not on some other relationship. And so I think the fact that people have gravitated toward Twitter as the medium in which we have political debates has also helped polarize things because we only know each other sometimes through these Twitter exchanges and the broader context in which we might know someone, see their political views as part of some personal journey, or look beyond a political difference to see something we have in common. That doesn't exist on Twitter. It does exist on Facebook. That's one of the reasons I don't post about politics on my personal Facebook page. And Instagram, I use for pretty pictures of the beach and animals and stuff like that. I don't use each social platform in the same way, but a lot of people do. And I think that accounts for some of the feeling of alienation people have 
you can have a tough day on Twitter where people are fighting you or coming at you for some reason. And it can feel bad if you are treating it like Facebook, which is really a community of people you already know from other contexts. Twitter, as someone said this week, is basically a cesspool. It's simply an open forum, or at least it was until they started labeling fact checks on the president and only the president so far, because, you know, if, if you're trying to find bad information on Twitter and, and you know, you're surprised. Well, trust you find me, we'll get to that. I'll, we'll definitely you know? be getting to that in a second. But I just yeah. I, but I kind of want to I just kind of want to take a broad view of Twitter in general. But we certainly have to talk about that. But I I want to Congressman Joe, since we have a Joe and a Joel Congressman, yeah. um, do do we. Whose fault is it that Twitter gets so much um, attention then, if if it really is a cesspool? And I think what Joel says sounds like it makes a lot of sense that people are not necessarily trying to have real, honest, thoughtful discourse on Twitter. Whose fault is it that it is getting so much attention? Is it our fault for agreeing that this is the place that we're going to have our political discourse? Is it the media's fault for putting so much attention on it? Is it the president's fault because he uses it as if though it's, I mean, why has it gotten so much credibility? And why is Twitter able to get someone fired from their job within the span of what, three hours, uh, if if they want to, if we want to cancel them? Well, Clay, I guess I, and I want you to take heart, I guess I quibble a little. Please, help me. (laughs) Take heart, young man. I don't think it's it's a cesspool. Look, the the country, this country that we all love is divided. We're very divided right now. And those people on Twitter are the people, I think, who politically pay the most attention. So it's like, it's like the nerve central of the divide. So you You see the divide. I, I mean, to politically, generally, to what's going on. You, you okay. get journalists, you get other inside players on Twitter who are who are invested in a certain side in this divide and the fight. And so you see you the fight. You are being optimistic. No, you are being. I mean, I th- and Clay, Clay, I think it is. I think it is ugly. But again, I think our body politic right now is pretty ugly. Because I see some pretty ignorant people on Twitter from both sides. So it's very it's very optimistic to, that you hey, think Clay, a lot. I mean, yeah, Facebook. there certainly are people go paying attention. Yeah, well, I turned that one off, too. Um, <laughs> but let's, let's, let's Bill, I, I want to let you make sure you have a chance to respond to any and all of that stuff, too. But I want to double down a little bit. I added a few in that list that I don't know that I necessarily care to touch on unless someone else does. But there are two or three in there that we I feel we need to not the least of which is um, President Biden's comments last Friday um, to Charlemagne the God, where he he ended his conversation with uh, with Charlemagne by making what some saw as a flippant comment that was ill-timed, some saw as a joke, and some saw as directly offensive and and almost indicative of Joe Biden's ignorance towards uh, black black voters and minorities. Um, we saw the whole entire span of those three uh, spectrum of those three reactions on Twitter. What do you think it was um, from Joe Biden? Why do you think he responded that way? And why do you think people responded to him saying, if you're having trouble deciding between me and Trump, you ain't black? What caused that and what caused the uproar? Well, just real quickly, I do want to uh, associate myself with what Congressman Walsh was saying. I do think that Twitter um, does reflect the state of our body politic. And, 
you know, I don't think that it's, it's, you know, that negativity is, is all over this discourse. Um, but when I look at Twitter, the, the thing that I try to do is get the, like, where's the joy on Twitter? And there is some Sarah Cooper. I don't know if anybody's following her on Twitter. Oh, her yeah. impersonations of Trump are like the best yeah. thing that's happening on the inter- internet. Maria Dakotas and her impersonations of Governor Cuomo, New York, and her and his daughters. Is Ironically, great. both things where they're actually not sharing their own opinions or thoughts. They're just they're just making comedy. You know, so essentially, if you'll do comedy, you're fine. But if you start trying to put a complex thought into 180 characters, we're screwed. <laughs> well, I think the the way that they're doing the phys- physicality of the comedy with the facial expressions is actually an interesting way to do the art form where you are expressing a you know a, a point of view. But in in direct answer to your question, you know, Biden said something that he shouldn't have said. He took responsibility for it. He apologized, and you know, at a time when you you were seeing the crushingly depressing images of an African-American man losing his life at the knee of a white officer and three of his colleagues. It's, you know, I feel like the smallness of the stupidity of Joe Biden's comment versus the largeness of the institutional racism that we face and a president of the United States who um, has encouraged the worst behaviors and the worst attitudes in this country is so vastly different that um, I can see why the uproar was kicked up on Twitter um, by President Trump, by his supporters, by, you know, even folks on the left. But at the same time, I just think that it is such a small issue. And the, the, the hand-wringing and the, the declarations that this is going to be the weaponized issue of 2020, I think, misses the mark. I think this is going to be forgotten in 20, 30 minutes from now. And we're going to be on to something else. Was it a small issue, though, to black voters who did vote for Trump? I mean, they exist. I mean, they're, they're, there's a healthy, for a Republican, a healthy percentage of them who voted for Donald Trump. Um, and, and if you were a black voter who voted for Donald Trump, do you think that it was reasonable to hear what he said as being offensive? It's small in the sense that it was a stupid comment that he immediately apologized for. And the other issues out there are so vastly bigger than a comment that even Joe Biden said that he wouldn't make again. So, yes. Yeah. It no, is quite small. Yeah, it was nothing. Okay. So, look, compared to the thousand insane, hideous things that Donald Trump said, are we really having a conversation over this? Uh, so, here, I'll take my own ethnic group. I, you know, I grew up Muslim. I'm now agnostic. But, but if somebody said, if you vote for Trump, you ain't Muslim, I'd be like, goddamn right, that's true. Okay. That's like, what are you, nuts? If you're Muslim voting for Trump, he hates you. He despises you. He runs campaigns against you. That's correct. So they're making a, a mountain out of a molehill. And, and I know what, then some leftists will jump on me, and this is why we've got the issues that we do, where they'll say, well, you're not allowed to speak on behalf of other groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm allowed to do whatever I want, okay? And everyone on planet Earth knows that what Joe Biden said is absolutely nothing compared to the thousand uglier things that Donald Trump has said. And anyone pretending otherwise is being clearly disingenuous. And I'll double down on what Bill said about George Floyd. What happened to George Floyd is a massive cancer in this country. And that's a 
that's a our foot is our, our leg is broken there and we might bleed out okay meanwhile somebody's like oh you scraped your fingernail on because joe biden said something slightly wrong who cares well i mean that's i mean it sounds like there's a lot of uh, it, it, that sounds like a reasonable assessment of the situation to me i mean as a gay man i said this i have said i guarantee you the same thing with different words to friends of mine if you're trying to decide between trump and biden you ain't gay i've said it myself so i can't so i personally understood it but i mean joel the the white house and the trump campaign have certainly made hay out of this do they think that it is going to be a um an argument a winning argument do they think that it has offended enough people or are they just, you know, poking the bear? Well, I think the key point is that when you said it, you're a member of the group in question, you know, and okay. if Jenk is talking about Muslim voters or I'm talking about Jewish voters, you have a certain credibility. I think what people even on the left objected to in Biden's statement was that he was playing the race card on someone else's behalf. He was making a statement about identity when he's not actually part of the group. And I think that's what people resented, that it's not really up to him to decide what the boundaries of African-American identity ought to be. And before Joe Biden was put on the ticket by Barack Obama, he really did not have any kind of distinguished record in civil rights, in racial equality, quite the opposite. Kamala Harris actually picked that apart pretty well in the first debate last year. You know, and I write about that in my book, Red November, about how she really went at him and almost overtook him in the polls. In fact, I think she did overtake him for a short period of time over the summer I think of 2019. I overtook him in the polls during the primaries. <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> he, had, he, had a bad, he had a bad start to that. Yeah, he, she really honed in on that, and, and she was right. Until Obama essentially absolved Joe Biden of that past. That was his past. He did not really have a sterling record. He was known on the left. Is that for, fair? Is that fair, though, Joe, to Joe Walsh, to no, say that, no, that no. Barack Obama had to absolve Joe Biden? I mean, is that the only reason that black voters like him, though, because Barack Obama said he was OK? God, no, not at all. And it, look, I agree with Bill and Chank. This is just so, this is the upside down freaking Trump world we live in. I mean, all of us are public figures. I've been in Congress. We all step in it. We all say careless, stupid things. We walk around with these phones. So everything we say is instantly recorded. Biden said something careless. He got a little too comfortable. And you know what he did? The next day he apologized. I mean, he apologized. Chink's right. This guy in the White House says a thousand cruel, dishonest things a day. And he's never apologized. So all I think that did play was, I think it once again just distinguished the kind of person Biden is from Trump. But hasn't not apologizing helped him, Bill? You're a communications expert. There's something about the magic of never apologizing and admitting. Al Franken, he apologized, he admitted, he ended up having to resign. Bill Clinton, he apologized, he admitted, he ended up, you know, losing, getting impeached. I mean, there's, and Donald Trump, I mean, what is the magic from a communication standpoint, Bill Burton, of the fact that Donald Trump has never apologized and therefore he's been able to sort of be Teflon. Is there, an, is there a politics of n- to, to not apologizing ever? Well, I, I disagree with the notion that Donald Trump has been Teflon 
for starters. I think that he's fundamentally disqualified from being president by at least 48 to 49 percent of the American people. So there's that. You know, there's arguments to never apologizing because, um, you know, there's a suggestion that it shows weakness. But there's also uh, the humanity of recognizing that you made a mistake, which we all do all the time which Joe Biden did in this case, and I think did a good job of apologizing. I think that, that Donald, Trump, Donald Trump's lack of an ability to apologize or feel any sort of humility or empathy or show any signs of human life other than idiocy really hurts him with most voters. Um, and I, I don't think that he benefits from not apologizing. He just sort of cements in a, a narrow and more narrow base every day uh, along along his side. Joel, do you agree? Or is it is it a good thing from your perspective that he has not apologized for anything? Well, he has apologized occasionally. I remember he apologized to Theresa May when she was Prime Minister of Great Britain, of the United Kingdom. When she was at a press conference at the White House, he apologized for something he said. And he's done it on a couple other occasions. I think what he understands is that the media do not reward apologies. We don't reward politicians when they apologize because it just sets off another news cycle around what this person said. If they've apologized, they've admitted they've done something wrong. So that adds to the pressure that the media want to ratchet up on a politician. And it works on, on both sides that way. So I think he understands that in the media environment, you're not going to have the kind of human interaction with another person who you may have wronged or whatever. You know, and Joe Biden, I don't think he actually apologized to the black community. I mean, he said he regretted saying what he said and he wouldn't have said it again. I mean, that's good enough for me, but I don't think he actually apologized. And I think he also understands that there's really a limit to what can be achieved in that kind of public apology. I think we'd like to see more of it. I personally would like to see more of it just from the hard lesson of experience. There's just nothing to be gained from it. And it's often a trick that past Republicans have been falling victim to or have been vulnerable to is this idea that if you admit to one thing or another, then everything will be okay. It it never works out that way. It never did. I mean, did George W. Bush get any credit from the media when he gave up golf because people complained about him golfing during during the Iraq war? No. And did did Barack Obama give up golf when we were at war? No, he didn't. I mean, he understood that this was something he was going to do, whether you know, people liked it or not. And there was nothing to be gained by these gestures because the media would just hound you one way or the other, or they'd protect you one way or the other, depending on their political predilection. I think Joe Biden expressed an attitude that is unfortunately common on the left, which is to regard African-American votes as the property of the Democratic Party. And you see it when black conservatives come out, how badly they're treated often. And you see it often, you know, in my own community, in the Jewish community. I mean, that, that accusation goes both ways. People accuse each other of doing the wrong thing for the Jewish community for voting Republican or for voting Democrat. I mean, I, I try not to do that sort of thing because I think it is so damaging. And I think for Joe Biden to have said it was wrong. But as, as, as Congressman Joe says, I mean, politicians do step in it from time to time. And I think this is a news cycle that will soon be forgotten. But I do think it was kind of a clarion call to black conservatives that they have, they have something at stake in this election. Jenk, do you think it's do you think it's accurate that Democrats have taken um, the black vote for granted? Well, so let's be honest. Um, 
and, and I have an interesting By all question. means. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I, I got a point about apologizing too, but let me take this one at a time. So um, in, in terms of taking it for granted, uh, yeah, uh, democratic establishment uses uh, identity politics as a weapon. Um, and they use it against conservatives, but they also use it uh, against progressives. And so uh, if they can find an African-American candidate that actually loves corporate donors, gold, they love it. They, they can't get enough of it. And then if you say, hey, wait a minute, that person's helping the bankers or helping the corporate donors, they go, oh, my God, are you racist? Right. So it's the most disingenuous, sickening way of using uh, identity politics. Now, the reality is the right wing also uses identity politics. They're the king of identity politics. Uh, you know, uh, what is the Southern strategy? The Southern strategy is white people are awesome and civil rights sucks. So make sure you vote for Republicans. It is the granddaddy of all identity politics. Um, in terms of apologizing, I can tell you I have a unique perspective on it. I've seen it polling on it in my own brief congressional run. Uh, apologizing does not work. It doesn't move the numbers at all. Uh, so it maybe helps you one or two points, um, but out of like 77 negative, 75 negative, it doesn't matter at all. If you deny it, though, you might get half of your side to believe you. So it's actually <laughs> a decent political strategy, but comes with a huge caveat you have to be right wing because the right wing loves non-apologetic tough guys democrats hate it hate it so if you don't apologize as a democrat you're toast you're not civil enough and npr will play banjo music around you and tut tut you to death <laughs> but if you do apologize you may end up going also Oh, yeah, there's no winning. That's why the establishment uses it uh, as a bludgeon against progressives every single time. So that's why they'll say, oh, can you believe Bernie Sanders uh, accepted the endorsement of Joe Rogan? This is outrageous. Look at all the terrible things Joe Rogan has said. He's got to apologize, right? Then Hillary Clinton will go on Howard Stern, who said a thousand things way worse than Joe Rogan. And they'll be like, oh, she's so wonderfully with the people. Howard is great. She's so funny on Howard. She's so wonderful. And the mainstream media is the worst of the worst. They are the allies of corporate Democrats. They help them play that game. I can give you a thousand examples where they do that hypocritically against progressives and from time to time against conservatives. Just to leap off of what Cenk said, I think it's different when you're a candidate for president. I, I, I think it's a much different deal. And I think we're living in a much different time. I think that the American people are tired of this ass wipe in the White House. So I think it's helpful for Joe Biden to show that he's a decent guy. Um, when he steps in it, he'll apologize. I think that will play well for him. What what is it that so so Charlemagne? I want to I want to pivot a little bit. Charlemagne asked. He responded to that that flippant, we'll call it, remark from, um, from the vice president, not by, taking, not by taking offense to it, but by saying, no, I, it has nothing to do with whether you're Trump or you're Biden, has nothing to do with you're Republican or Democrat. I want to know what it is that you're going to do for the black community. And that's what his goal was in most of, a lot of his interview with Joe Biden, was trying to understand what Joe Biden was going to do or says he will do for the black community. Um, what, what, that, that question comes up a lot um, through many campaigns, Bill. What is it that, that 
Charlemagne is wanting him to say. What are these people who are asking Democrat or Republican candidates, what are you going to do for the black community? What is it that we believe they are hoping the answer will be? Well, I'm glad we're getting to this part of it because I think the substantive reasons that African-American voters have overwhelmingly supported Democrats over Republicans is rooted in policy and not just whether or not somebody's taking somebody for granted or not, or, you know, what the politics of the moment are. You know, if you look historically, um, and I'm not one to say that African-American voters or any group of voters are monolithic, right? I think that there is nuance and there are important things to know about every set of voters out there, every group, every community. But in the African-American community, you know, if you if you look at the history of the Democratic Party going back to civil rights, if you look at how Democrats approach um, you know, economic opportunity, access to voting, um, education, on and on and on, I think that there is a reason that African-Americans feel more comfortable inside the Democratic Party than with the Republican Party who has welcomed some pretty vicious elements into its fold, particularly during the Trump administration. And looking right, forward, but I know I speak I can- to I speak I speak to a lot of friends of mine who are very active in politics, who are black, and I can't tell you the number of people who have told me, "Well, Barack Obama didn't do anything for the black community either." Um, so, sure, I- if if that's if that's the cons- if that is the it's not the consensus, it's just empirical evidence from my conversation. But it does come up more than I would have thought it would. Well, I think the answer is in looking forward as well. I think, um, I think you're you're focus group of individuals who say that Afri- President Obama didn't do anything for the African-American community is uh, composed of a minority uh, view of what President Obama was able to do over the course of his administration in terms of, uh, specifically in the African-American community, in terms of economic development, health care, and a whole array of issues. But if you also look forward, voters have to ask themselves, what sort of president do we want to have coming through this crisis? Someone who uh, favors corporations over regular folks, someone who is not taking the challenge of educating kids in this crisis seriously, somebody who doesn't really even have childcare on their uh, on their agenda. You know, I think President Trump tried to do these, um, tried to engage in these issues that had some bipartisan appeal, like criminal justice reform, et cetera, thinking that oh, that's that that's the path to getting African American voters. A policy it's thing? too. Is it yes. really a policy thing? I, I mean, listen, I'd love to believe that everything you said could be, you're talking about could be passed. But if we pass tens, tens of scores of laws that, that have to do with economic improvement and educational attainment, et cetera, and we still have cops kneeling on black men's necks for nine minutes and not having a regard for, you know, a black, an unarmed black man's life. Are we really making any progress? I, I mean, wh- what is the policy that is going to fix that kind of thing right there? Because I imagine everybody on this podcast tonight actually probably agrees that what happened in Minneapolis this week um, is abhorrent, should not ever happen. But it sort of sounds to me like almost like the gun debate. We always hate it after it happens. But what is the policy that is going to fix that? Anybody answer that? Well, this racism isn't new. It's just that it's now on film, right? Like this is what we saw on video is as old as our country, 
right? And I'm with you. Like, we got to figure out a, a, a path out of it. I can tell you what the path is not. It's not having a virulent racist in the White House who is um, passing down attitudes and um, a sense that this is not Check. something that we need Noted. to combat. <laughs> Noted. Agreed. Now, somebody tell me what is the path. But, Anybody. But, yeah, I just but, <laughs> be, but even, and, and I agree with Bill and Trump, but this is like separate from Trump. Um, look, I, I, I generally defend I our cops, and I want to always try to give our cops the benefit of the doubt. But, Clay, you're right. I mean, I couldn't watch that video. We've got a problem. We've got police officers in this country uh, who need some education. They need some community training. Uh, they need to learn how to work with members of their community instead of constantly being at odds in with members of these communities. Um, but again, it would help. Maybe this is part of what Bill was saying. It would help to have a voice in the White House who could bring the country together on an issue like that, like what happened in Minneapolis. Trump's incapable of any of that.
this is like this is a, a death warrant for me for something that I don't even know anything about. And the cop who tried to save his life. They thought he had robbed a deadliest man in this country. Guys who would not hesitate to blow your head off. In 1970, Muhammad Ali triumphantly returned to the ring. At the hustlers party that followed, gangsters from around the country were robbed of a million dollars. This story from Atlanta, Georgia has been reported for 50 years. But now, for the first time, you're going to hear what really happened from the people who lived it. Listen and follow Fight Night on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Dr. Wendy Walsh, host of the podcast Mating Matters. I believe nearly every human behavior is motivated by a desire for love, sex, or to hedge your reproductive odds. I think women have this ability to plant these mental bombs into a man's mind. But the thing about humor is that the value of humor, it goes up. We're wired to reproduce. To them, it was a super female. It was a giant female. And they were lured into um, into trying to mate with it. The science of love is fascinating. It's a bizarre form of biohacking, really. If you have the 7R plus gene, you are more likely to be involved in an affair, yes. That's where some of the research gets really intriguing. There's so many ways to be a human. But I must say, sex between three people can get complicated. In a nutshell, the Kinsey scale looked at two things, sexual fantasies and actual sexual behavior. Listen to Mating Matters on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So um, I, yeah. I will own my bias. My, the, my producers hate it when I use that phrase, but they're probably taking a drink right now. I'll own my bias here and I'll say that, you know, I, it's well established that I'm a Democrat and I ran uh, for Congress as a Democrat. But I got in trouble. I got Twitter bombed or mobbed a few uh, a few years ago right after Charlottesville because I know President Trump. I knew him when I was on his show. And d- throughout his campaign, while I didn't support him, while I supported uh, Bernie first and then Hillary, I did not want to go so far as to say he was a racist. I didn't believe it. But to respond to your question, Joel, about what is a racist, after Charlottesville, I very publicly stated, okay, I apologize for not allowing, for not agreeing that he was a racist. I say he is now. And that is because after after Charlottesville, because there was an intention to it. And in the South, I see all levels of racism throughout my entire however many years of life um and and there i do think that there are times when the word may be thrown around in ways to people that may not deserve it but when but, there is but, an intentionality but when, well, I mean, you I, can I ask when i'm I done think, you can ask okay, when i'm so. done mm-hmm. there is, when there is an intentionality to it that's when i think it crosses the line over into racism and in the weekend that charlottesville happened there was at a press conference on Saturday where Donald Trump said some things that a lot of people immediately considered were racist. He said the first time, he was the first time he said there were a lot of good people on both sides. And, and admittedly, people went up in arms and they were very upset about that. And he made a point to come back out on Monday and speak again. And in that moment on Monday, I thought, okay, maybe he's going to actually kind of toned down his rhetoric, but he knew exactly what it was that he said that so many people considered to be racist, and he intentionally said it again. And so for me, and again, I grew up a white man. I did grow up gay, but I don't know what it's like to be a a racial minority. But for me to look at someone 
be have it explained to them what you have said has been is incredibly offensive to people of 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 a different race for you to say it to find out you said it and how it offended people and then go intentionally say it again yeah i think that crosses over into racism so again owning my bias here take another drink producers i I have to say, Joel, yeah, I kind of understand why people think it's racism when there have been so many examples of this president doing and saying things that were blatantly offensive to people. And then, back to what we were talking about earlier, not only not apologizing for them, you know, maybe we'll have to overlook the non-apology, but then going out and saying them again, knowing how offensive they are to people. That that crosses the line. And if do you not understand so I, how that could be seen that yeah, way? I, I think you should go back and look again at what he said, because I don't want to nitpick the exact quote with you, because, but you've got it wrong um, in terms of what he said on the Saturday and what he said following you also missed the part where he condemned totally, that's his phrase, condemned totally, the neo-Nazis and white supremacists. And that story has been retold intentionally by Joe Biden, actually, among others. But Joe Biden launched his campaign by misrepresenting what Trump had said in Charlottesville. And so I think... Yeah, there have been a lot of examples of Democrats. I, I let you finish. I let you finish. I think that what's striking to me is how Trump's condemnation of neo-Nazis and white supremacists, which didn't just happen at the press conference. He also gave a televised address from the White House or a speech where he went through racism, KKK, neo-Nazis, condemned all of them. That is just not remembered by the media. And I think when you talk about intentionality, it gets into an area where we're trying to read someone's mind. And I think if you don't have a better example of somebody coming out and actually saying or doing something racist... I think it's a hard yeah, case to make. Guys. I mean, I understand that people in a political environment will will say this sort of thing. And sometimes Trump says things, you know, that I, that I don't agree with that might be mind reading. But I think just to get to your question about solving the, the problem, because if you want to put it back on that track. Um, <laughs> you can I put it on whatever track I you want to put it I on. I'm going to let Bill get on whatever I, damn track yeah. he wants to. <laughs> <laughs> so we might as well let him talk. I think that in general, we, we have these incidents, but I think in general, Bill, get in there. <laughs> I don't know what to say whatever he's saying. I don't know. I'm sorry? I mean, I want people to be able to listen to you, Joel. So let's let Bill respond to the first thing, and then you can then you'll be able to say oh, what I'm you sorry, want to say because I feel like it's just I feel like it's just gonna you're gonna get ignored if we don't let Bill respond to what you first said. So go ahead, Bill. Sorry, go ahead. I just think you know, when when we look back at this moment in five, ten, twenty years from now. And we look at Donald Trump, starting with, you know, where he got to start in real estate, which was all the housing discrimination cases that he lost because the Justice Department sued him. The Central Park jogger case, as Jenk laid it out, you know, the kind words that he's had for David Duke, his pardon for Joe Arpaio, one of the great racists in American history, what he did with President Obama and his citizenship, what he said about any number of groups. I mean, do you want to look back at this moment and be the guy who's like, oh yeah, Donald Trump, he's not racist. He was standing up for the good people on both sides in Charlottesville, but that was only because he knew some like nice people who that, were that's not what on he the said. side I mean, of the you, Confederate generals. His mouth, it just didn't happen. You, he you can't, you can't nitpick on that point. You, for you, example, you, Charlotte, let me start with David Duke. What kind words did he say about David Duke? You've made a really powerful accusation. What did he say about David Duke? Do you know what he said about David Duke? 
I do. I know a great deal of what he said Please, about David okay, Duke. Good. And I also know that and, 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 and I know that he also Donald said that he himself wasn't. And I know that he you hold on, Joel. You hold on, Joel. I mean you can defend the racist as not being racist. But I think that when you look back at this moment, this is not a moment that you can't answer the question out of in the future. You can't answer the question? What did he say about David Duke? Yeah, what did he say? He said, I think that the people are mad about uh, David Duke because it just shows the hostility in this country. People are angry about the jobs. So that's kind words about David Duke? That has nothing to do with David Duke. And it was it was directly in response to a question about David Duke. Joel, I mean, I understand. This is my point. My point is that so I mean, many your defense people believe when it isn't true. The comment about both sides in Charlottesville referred to both sides. He was talking about left and right on either side of the statue issue. And then he right away condemned the neo-Nazis. He said, I condemn them totally. So I've, my feeling and in interviews is that with the neo-Nazis say oh, is that they understand that President my, Trump had to say that, but they know that he's on their side. You're reading people's minds. If you want to no, do I'm that. No, not reading people's minds. We, we, like, we never, we never, check we the can, news, we my friend. We around and around. I mean, I can tell you what I think was on Joe Biden's mind. I don't think it helps anybody. But I think that so much of our media coverage of these events involves planting words into the discourse that never happened or ignoring things that were said that did happen. And these things become believed in as an article of faith. When actually we'd probably all feel a lot better about politics if we simply listen to people instead of putting words in their mouth. That's how I feel about Trump. I, I think he's been fair-minded uh, on, on issues of race and has gone further than any other Republican, I think. In, okay, in well, let me, let me, let's, let's go with that then, Joel, for a second, because I want to take out the word. Let's just, for the sake of an experiment here, um, for the discussion, let's take the word racist out of the, of the, our terminology for just a second. And let me ask Joel, instead of saying that he's racist, maybe you already answered it. Do you feel that Donald Trump has a weakness when it comes to race relations? Do you feel he has been, do you really feel he's been better at race relations than, um, than previous presidents have been? I mean, I guess I'm trying to figure out where on the spectrum you think he lies because I, I mean, maybe I'll listen to those who, who argue that not all Republicans are people who voted for Trump are racist. I don't, I think that's a bridge too far, but I don't think it's real. I think it may be a little bit laughable to imply that Donald Trump has been health has had a healthy record on race relations um you know do you do you where do you feel he lies on the spectrum joel well i don't know if i'd put him on a spectrum i think that if you look at the polling data race relations have improved over the last couple of years i would say that he has not achieved what people hope uh, a president would achieve on race relations i think the country is more divided but I think that's not entirely his fault. I think that his skill set is well suited to providing policies that help people across a broad spectrum. Prior to the coronavirus, he was very proud of the low unemployment rates in black and Hispanic and Asian American communities, and he talked about it a lot. He did criminal justice reform. He pardoned Jack Johnson. He did a lot of things that I think were substantive, but I think that simply his combative style, if you just take the race out of it, I think Donald Trump's style has exacerbated an already existing division. And that's complicated. It's complicated because I think there are people for whom Donald Trump fights for his constituency, for the people who voted for him, 
they've felt embattled his entire presidency. They've watched the media try to take him down over Russia collusion and all kinds of other stuff. They feel like he's never had a chance to govern. He never had the honeymoon other presidents had. And they feel like he's confronted by this hostile media that's trying to edit them out of the American picture at the same time. So I think he's fighting and that creates difficulties in establishing national unity. But again, he's also fighting against people who are fighting him. And I think that there's never been an acceptance among Democrats of the results of the 2016 election. And that's where we are as a country. He fights back. That's complicated. No, that make- your comments, your comments. That's a bunch of bullshit. Come on. The president of the United States last week and this week accused a private citizen of murder, Joel, of murder. Now, 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 who else did that with him? He did that. That's divisive. That's ugly. That's on Trump. Donald Trump told four brown-skinned congresswomen last year to go back to where they came from. That's on him. Uh, the problem with Trump, guys, is he, he doesn't care about anybody, white, black, brown, yellow, whatever you are. So it's hard to pin him down and say he doesn't like black people. All he cares about is himself. But yes, he's a racist and a bigot. And, and at, at least, at, at, at the best, he stokes racism. Okay. I would just I would just want to say that the the notion that if you if you take race out of his combative style, whatever you said next, is a little reminiscent of when Marion Barry said, "Well, if you don't look at murder, the the crime rate's not that bad in Washington D.C." <laughs> race is a big part of his combative style, and it's it happens over and over again. Whether he's calling African countries shithole countries or parting Joe Arpaio, I I, I mean. I just I, 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 I am sorry for you that you will be associated with the things that you were saying about President Trump and race forever. He's a racist. That He's not You'll a great be, guy. Associated. What, what, is, what does that mean? I will be associated with someone. You know, we had a, we started this discussion talking about civility and discourse and whether people apologize. I heard Joe Walsh call the president an asswipe, which struck me as odd for someone who wants to talk about the benefit of apologizing or giving Joe Biden the benefit of the doubt. You're now trying to essentially say that I'm contaminated because I've made an argument for the president, which is evidence-backed. You don't have to agree with it, and you can bring other arguments, but this is political discussion. The idea that we are going to be permanently contaminated by defending someone who's standing up for what we believe in is so toxic to ordinary political discourse that I think you ought to reconsider that. Because well, let me are, ask this: Would those folks things, who lived ahead. in were those folks who lived in Alabama in the nineteen fifties and sixties who stood and supported George Wallace as he stood in front of the schoolhouse door um, and said segregation today, tomorrow, forever? Those folks who supported him and who who helped him physically keep black kids out of schools in Alabama are they not? tarnished by that? Do you think that a lot of them don't look back now and say, oh, shit, I probably shouldn't have done that. That was a mistake. And I'm not proud of that moment. I think there are quite a few people today in their 70s, 80s, who look back at that part of their life when they supported George Wallace or what other governors in other southern states and think, damn, I am a little embarrassed that I believed that. Is it possible that there may come a time when people look at what Donald Trump has done and said and some of the ways he has spoken and think, oh, shit, in hindsight, that that probably was not the best way, best thing for me to be supportive of? 
Well, not only, look, I, the, the, I think the principle you apply is what do people do after they've taken a position like that? And, and George Wallace is a great example because he was a Democrat who supported segregation. And as you say, he stood in the schoolhouse doors and he recanted his beliefs and was reelected as governor in the 1970s and again in the 1980s. And he won with overwhelming African-American support. And there are many segregationist Democrats who had a similar journey. And that's what Kamala Harris. They should be given credit for that, right? Uh, Joe Biden. They should be given credit for it. But if they can't acknowledge that what they said back then was wrong, then as George Wallace attempt tried to do, then they don't necessarily get the credit for it. I mean, I hear what you're trying to say. If you supported racist policies now, you'll be okay in 20 years as long as you in 20 years say I was wrong for doing it. But if you're going to have to do it in 20 years, why don't you go ahead and do it now? But what racist policies is anybody supporting now? I don't even think that's an issue. I mean, oh my my God, nobody's nobody's supporting a racist. Nobody's supporting a racist policy. Um, if, if there's an argument against what I'm saying, I mean, I think it was Bill who said I'll be associated with this president. If you can come up with a good reason for me to disassociate, you know, from my conservative beliefs or my support for this president and you can provide evidence, I, I will happily change my views. And I don't think I have to apologize morally for taking what I think is, you know, quite an uncontroversial con- conservative stance on the issues. But you know, for those people who were misled into defending segregation, and many of them were Democrats. I mean, is the Democratic Party tarnished by its association with Jim Crow? I mean, do you feel, you all feel uh, contaminated because you you vote Democratic? I mean, you know, it, things change. I feel so sad that the party that I belong to ever supported those racist policies, right? I hate it. I hate that there were leaders in the party who who took us to a place where um, African-Americans were seen as subhuman, right? But thank God there were Democratic leaders in this country who helped turn all that around and that we have gone on to a different path and we have gone on into this fight against Donald Trump and some of the horrible things he has done and said. And when I say that you will be associated with this forever, I'm not, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe that all, all people are worthy of redemption, right? All things can be redeemed. I say that I am, feel sorry for you because I, I think that this is a particularly terrible moment in our country's history, in large part because of the man who occupies the White House, and in large part because of the beliefs that he has, that he has demonstrated throughout his career from the time he, was a, uh, he began as a real estate developer in the 70s to when he calls African countries shithole countries, to his pardon of Joe Arpaio, to the comments that he makes about uh, African Americans or Pocahontas or whatever it is, all the time, every day. Being a racist means you think that other races are lesser than your race. That is what Donald Trump has demonstrated throughout his professional career. That is why I'm so sorry for you that you will be associated with that. Well, Joe, I appreciate Joe, your, your concern oh. there, but I, it's, it's not warranted. I, I I'm not concerned. Point. I'm not concerned. I don't care. I'm just saying, I'm just, saying, I'm just making the point. I, I, feel, I feel comfortable with my support for the president. I feel he's done more to advance a conservative constitutional agenda than any president in my life. And, <laughs> oh, I, and, I, and I, feel, I feel strong about that. I mean, you guys can laugh, but listen, listen to me. I'm the one person on this podcast who's taking my position. And this is what it's like for a conservative to go into public debate where you've got 
ninety percent of the media, you know, shouting Joel. you down, calling you names, and Joel. and this is this is what it's like, and that's why I'm. I don't proud think of anyone him. has shouted you down here. Up, I think he's standing up to the kind of he's standing up to the kind of thing you're trying to do to me, and I actually feel pretty pretty proud of it. Um, what's interesting oh. to me, and, and you know, yeah, just Joel, to come back, stop, to, stop, to, stop. What? Just, no, you're filibustering. When I when I wrote what I wrote in my book, Red November, and this I'll 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 talk after this. The Democratic Party has moved so far to the left that it's almost uh, unrecognizable. I wish. And, <laughs> well, Not even is, close. This is, the, this is the most left-wing primary we've ever had. And I think that's Joe something Biden that... Is the primary is over and the moderate won. Yes, but he's moved so far to the left, he's almost unrecognizable in terms of his past He's position. a Republican. He loves Republicans. He loves Trump. Okay, that's also that's also hyperbole. But um, <laughs> I'm let Jake talk in a second. Let her, Joel, hurry up. I'm going to have to shame. No, I, can Barack I, for Obama God's himself. sake, I can't Barack believe Obama I can't get in a word edgewise. This is the first Barack time Obama. it's ever happened to me. So I'm just going to start talking until no one can else I, is talking. I, and then I can finally say something. No, Joel, you can't say anything anymore. You spoke for 84% of this podcast. I know you're a victim. Boo-hoo. I'm so picked on because I support the racist. Okay, so now I'm going to give you the whole spectrum, okay? So first of all, on Trump, this is an insane conversation. Even Joel's defense of him is, in, in, well, in the Confederate March in Charlottesville, he was defending the slave owner uh, supporters who wanted to enslave blacks forever and ever, not the Nazis. You see what a not wonderful non-racist he is? No, I don't see it. Then he went into a Jewish room and said, well, you know, this room renegotiates better than everyone else. Jesus Christ, what are you saying? Then he uh, accused uh, Latinos in Puerto Rico being lazy, and that's why they didn't react to the hurricane well. But then he said that the, he wanted a total ban on Muslims. I know Muslims don't count in this country, and no one cares about bigotry against Muslims, but you can't get any clearer than, I hate them all, I want to ban every single one of them. The guy is the biggest bigot I've ever seen in my life. So your conversation is, is total nonsense, and Joel, you know it. You know it. All right, but it doesn't matter. Let's move on to something constructive, which was actually Clay's original question. And I'm unbiased in that I think Joe Biden's record is on civil rights is pretty bad. Okay, no one can match Donald Trump. He's the worst of the worst. So he's super lucky in the opponent that he has. But Joe Biden has lied about civil rights, his civil rights record on many occasions, uh, including in a trip to South Africa, where I would argue it's stolen honor to say that you were arrested when you weren't. Uh, he was in favor of busing. And now all, every corporate Democrat has turned around and like, oh, no, Joe Biden's great. No, Obama picked Biden not because he was great with black voters. He picked him because he was good with white voters. Okay, because he was the guy who was proud to do deals with Strom Thurmond. So let's not do revisionist history here. And 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 Bill is right that there is a minority of Democrats who believe that Obama was did not deliver enough on that for African Americans. I'm in that minority. Uh, almost all the gains in the recovery went to the top one percent. He filled his cabinet and his uh, administration with bankers and 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 people who are one hundred percent in favor of corporate donors. And so, what could he have done to be constructive? Finally, guys, if you want to fix the the brutal treatment of African Americans by police in this country, 
Well, number one, you have to have federal prosecutions. If you do not have federal prosecutions, nonstop, you have local prosecutors who work with those same cops every single day. They're friends. They have their professional colleagues together. They have to work together the next day. Those are not unbiased people. You will never get justice for African Americans if you don't have federal prosecutions. And our police training across the board is disastrous. The theory is better to be judged by 12 than carried out by six. What does that mean? That means do not take any risks with your life. Instead, put your knee on the back of the neck of an African American until he is dead, rather than take 1% risk with your life. And that is why they murder people over and over and over again, because we train them wrong. We say, who cares if you kill civilians, especially if they're poor, and especially if they're black. You have to retrain the police wholesale in this entire country, otherwise they're going to keep killing us. That's constructive, but Obama didn't have the courage to do that. Biden will not do it, and of course Trump doesn't want to do it. That's why we should have elected a progressive, but that ship has sailed. So now we're going to have to choose between <laughs> the guy who was bad on civil rights and the guy who's a vicious racist. Well, I think if anything, Cenk, you may have you may have proven a point that I've tried to make for weeks. One of the most dangerous places to be in America is in the middle, because then you get hit from both <laughs> sides. And, uh, and Jink, you hit them both. Um, I really want to let other people talk, but we need to get to our quick fire round because I'm going to have to shave. Um, <laughs> this thing has gone for a while. <laughs> let me just remind you, we call it quick fire because we like to make it quick. So we go, we take questions from our audience. Um, you can submit your questions to us uh, for next week's panel through Instagram or Twitter at Politicon or by email uh, through podcasts at Politicon.com. Uh, we took questions from our audience and they are identified to be asked to one of you, each of you individually. So um, I've got a few questions for each of you. Um, you know, let's see how well this this crowd can do with the quick part of the quick fire <laughs> round. For Jink, um, Nora from D.C. asks, why does Bernie have to keep reminding his voters to support Biden? Because Biden is one of the most conservative Democrats in the country. He says over and over again, I will not do what progressives want. Uh, even if Medicare for All somehow miraculously passes Congress, I will veto it. I mean, that is a slap across the face. Uh, he's not going to do Green New Deal. He's not going to get money out of politics. It, you know, it's pretty bleak and hopeless for progressives. So, yeah, I, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden because the, my alter, the alternative is is a boogeyman, uh, the monster, okay? So nice job, corporate Democrats. Uh, but you have to motivate others, not political pundits who are neck deep in politics, but people who are not sure they want to get up off the couch to go vote for Joe Biden. In order for Joe Biden to do that for progressives, he's got to actually do something progressive. That's why Bernie Sanders supporters are, are hesitant about Joe Biden, justifiably okay. so. Okay, Bill. Deidre from Orlando asks, <laughs> Deidre from Orlando asks, after Breakfast Club, should Joe only do mainstream media? <laughs> Fair question. Come on now. You know she probably don't listen if she's calling it breakfast time. <laughs> Fair question. Now, Joe's, even though we all know Joe Biden, lots of people know Joe Biden. People got to know him as vice president and uh, his record before that. I think that he still needs to get out there and make his case in as many places as he can, as often as he can. I mean, one of the things that President Trump showed was that by 
flooding the zone and trying to make as much news as possible, get as much attention as possible, you can really build up a, a, a head of steam of momentum. And I think that Joe's got a lot to say. He's got a lot of janks to talk to out there about what his positive vision is for the country and why it won't be as cataclysmic as it may sound listening to Jank. Uh, <laughs> so he's got he's to go to a bunch of different venues in order to do that. Okay. Joel Pollock, Loretta from Jacksonville, Florida Heavy Show this evening. Loretta asks, what would the transfer of power look like if Joe Biden wins? Well, I think it would be pretty ordinary. It would probably be smoother than the last transfer of power, which I think was extraordinary because the outgoing administration did a lot to try to undermine the incoming one. I do think that what is curious is that the Democratic Party is building a committee around Biden that will essentially be running a Biden administration as a kind of regency, because I think there are questions about whether he's actually capable of doing the job. He's 77 years old, going on 78, and it shows. And I think the vice presidential pick becomes very important. The Biden campaign is already talking about cabinet picks, trying to get out there the idea that we're going to take the best of the past Democratic administrations, and that's who's going to be running the country. So I think the picture that they want in people's minds is that we're heading back to the Obama alumni with some of the creative new Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez policies. And so this is almost going to be a committee presidency. So I think a transition from Trump to Biden would almost have Biden as a figurehead. I don't think he's really going to be in command of his own administration. Quickfire round has rules, so I'm just going to keep going to Joe Walsh. Tina from Indianapolis asks, will you be campaigning for Republicans this cycle? Oh, gosh, no. I, uh, I've been very public. I'm, and look, if we were talking policy on this podcast, Joe Pollack and I would agree on a heck of a lot more than I would with Chank and Bill. Um, I, I've been very public. I am a conservative and I am going to work my butt off to get Joe Biden elected because I think Donald Trump is an existential threat to this country. I do think as well, Clay, it's important and this is difficult for me to say, but I think the Republicans need to lose the Senate. All of these Senate Republicans who have enabled this threat in the White House, they need to lose as well. So I'm going to be campaigning hard for Democrats this year. Bill, uh, Jason from Topeka asks, when will Obama come out swinging for Biden? My guess, I, I don't have special information on this. I haven't talked to him about it. But my guess is that once we get into the summer around convention time, you'll see the former president activate and start really making the case for Joe Biden and against President Trump. I think seeing President Obama is a reminder of how much better things can be when you don't have to um, cringe every time the news comes on and you know put the kids in a different room every time you see the president talking because you don't know what he's going to say. So I think it's going to be helpful when he does, and I think we're not too far off from it. Okay, Jake. Um, Luke from Oklahoma City asks, do you think we'll have live presidential debates this year? Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm rooting for it or not. Uh, so.
So, God, I hope Joe Biden can hang in there. Uh, look, uh, I think that they that Trump is a mess. If you had a strong debater, uh, you could easily eviscerate Donald Trump. Uh, but I don't know that Biden's that guy. Okay, Joel, um, <clears throat> Joaquin from Las Vegas. Do you think Joe Scarborough is a murderer? No, I don't think he's a murderer. I do think that he has spent the last three years lobbying unfounded accusations and abuse at the president. And I think that's the context in which this fight is taking place. I, I have to take oh issue God. with something Joe said. I, I think if you're campaigning for Democrats, that's fine. I, it doesn't square with the claim that you're a conservative. There's nothing that Joe Biden's going to achieve for conservatives. I just I can't accept that claim. Well, Joe, your last question uh, from Sophia of Tucson may give you a chance to respond. The question is, will there ever be room in the party for never Trump Republicans? No, I think the Republican Party is done. It's become a cult. Uh, I think the Republican Party is breaking up before our eyes. And respectfully, Joe, uh, if you're going to throw that at me, I don't know how you can claim to be a conservative if you support someone who lies almost every time he opens his mouth and abuses the powers of his office. So um, that's why I'm doing whatever I can this year to make sure that Donald Trump uh, loses because I think he's everything our founding fathers feared. And one of the things you're doing, Joe, um, your podcast, uh, Fuck Silence. I don't know if you pronounce the word, but we say it here. Um, your podcast, <laughs> Fuck Silence, and your book, and your book, Fuck Silence, is also available. Where can people get your book? Where can they hear your podcast? It's all there. Thanks, Clay. Go to Am uh, the book is still up there. Amazon, fuck silence, calling Trump out for the authoritarian he is, and the podcast is uh, fuck silence. F excuse me, F silence Thanks. F silence Joel, we can read some of your stuff on Breitbart, but we can hear and see and read you elsewhere as well. Correct. Yes, I've got a new book coming out shortly called Red November, and it's a. Uh, summary, or it's a, it's a story of the Democratic presidential primary from 2019 to 2020. I think it's a lot of fun. And it's current right up through the beginning of May. It comes out on July 14th, but you can pre-order it on Amazon.com. Okay, Red November. Bill, where can we hear and see you uh, through the rest of this year or while we're in quarantine? Read your thoughts. I'll be on Twitter, on cable, in my garage. <laughs> where I'm running Hopefully my, not getting hysterical on business. Twitter. And um, no, hopefully no canceling of anyone on Twitter. <laughs> no canceling. <laughs> Jenk, we know where we can see you because you're uh, everywhere. Uh, the Young Turks and TYT network is everywhere nowadays. Last time you were on, you had just, I think, made a deal with YouTube TV. Are you guys expanding more? Yeah, we're now on Comcast Xfinity uh, and, and Comcast uh, Flex as well. We're on Pluto, Roku, Zumo, uh, YouTube TV. Uh, we've got another announcement coming up soon. We just got a deal with Twitch. Uh, but basically any platform, you type in TYT or the Young Turks and you're going to get us. And you're going to get wonderful, awesome, I hope thoughtful, progressive commentary. If you've got a screen, you could get the Young Turks and you can follow Jenk, uh, Bill, uh, Joel and Joe all on Twitter. Um, you can find all that stuff on the Politicon Instagram and Twitter feed as well. So you can follow them all. We had some some 
strong disagreements here this evening, but you know, compared to some <laughs> of our some of our other episodes, it was believe it or not rather civil. And so I appreciate everyone for that. Thank you guys for listening. Um, thank you all four for being here this evening. Uh, if you want to hear more from these folks, you can follow them on Twitter and see all that info. We'll be back next week, and maybe we'll answer the question: How the heck are we going to get along? Thanks, guys. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. After you listen to today's podcast, here's one to add to your playlist. I'm Christian O'Connell, and I've had this thought for a while. What if you took the world's funniest and most interesting people... Hello, I'm Ricky Gervais. I'm Celeste Barber. Some people call me Beyonce. I'm Russell Brand. ...and asked them to share the stories behind their three most treasured items. No doubt about it, the guitar. I think I know the same chords now as I did when I was 14. From iHeartRadio, this is The Stuff of Legends. Add it to your playlist for free. Just search for Stuff of Legends in your podcast app.